You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Stress as much as you can to get complete visibility 100% of your environment. You can't protect what you don't know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben discusses the implications of the Supreme Court's abortion decision for digital privacy. I've got the story of a warrant authorizing the use of biometrics, but prohibiting the demand for a password. And later in the show, my conversation with Gary Bonacorsi, he's Tanium's SLED CTO and chief IT architect. We're discussing the Cyber Incident Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. All right, Ben, before we jump into stories here, we got a little bit of feedback from a listener of ours. Uh, This is an anonymous listener who spent part of their career as a U.S. Marshal. Now, a couple episodes ago, you and I were talking about uh, bench warrants, Mm -hmm. and we mentioned that uh, our experience with them was, maybe not personal experience, but our knowledge of them was that uh, a bench warrant was generally something where they didn't run you down. Uh, You know, if you have a bench warrant out to you, uh, on the next time you interact with law enforcement, they'll run your information and they'll say, oh, guess what? You have a bench warrant. I'm taking you in. But it was unlikely that someone was going to come knock on your door. Well, this listener said uh, that in the federal system, uh, if a bench warrant for failure to appear is issued, the U.S. Marshals will come actively looking for you. (laughs) And he says uh, in his experience as a U.S. Marshal, uh, that would absolutely happen. So just a little clarification there that uh, uh, our knowledge was incomplete. All right. Well, excuse me while I go hide in an underground bunker in a secure, <laughs> undisclosed location. That's right. Now you'll know why. Yeah. No, it's good to know. Good to yeah. know. All right. Well, let's jump into our stories this week. We've got a lot to cover. Uh, you've got the the hot, sticky topic this week. Uh, what do you got for us, Ben? 
I do not usually enjoy controversial political subjects. Sorry, that's partially a lie. Uh, <laughs> say, anyone, anyone who's seen your Twitter feed knows the opposite is true, but go on. But I think this is the biggest <laughs> digital privacy story of our time, and okay. I'm talking about the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs, uh, which, as we're recording, was handed down a few days ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are living under a rock, uh, the court in Dobbs, uh, in a split decision, but with a uh, five-justice majority, overruled Roe v. Wade and KCV Planned Parenthood, uh, and through the issue of abortion rights back to the state, saying that there's no constitutional right uh, to have an abortion. It's up to the state legislatures and the people in the several states uh, to choose the legal regime they want for abortion services. Right. So the immediate impact of this decision is that several states, I think seven at the time we're recording, uh, have now criminalized abortion. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are allowed to do that after this uh, Dobbs decision has taken place. And they had trigger laws in place, right? Exactly. Where- so they had these laws that said if Roe v. Wade is ever overturned, then uh, this state will make abortion illegal as soon as that decision uh, is handed down. Right. Sometimes they have additional requirements like a 30-day waiting period or a uh, has to be signed off by the attorney general or something, but that's generally how these trigger laws work. Okay. I would say by the end of the next month or so, we're going to see the states where abortion is either fully prohibited or effectively prohibited at any point during a pregnancy is going to reach upwards to 15 to 20 states. Okay. Uh, So this is something that's going to affect many people across the country. Yeah. The angle that has to do with digital privacy is uh, is there are now going to be criminal investigations within these states, both into people seeking abortions and to providers who are providing them Uh, illegally in one way or another. Hmm. And a lot of the evidence uh, that these prosecutors in these states are going to use is going to come from our digital footprint. Uh, We leave that digital footprint everywhere. Uh, So it's not just the Google searches for abortion clinics, although those can be subpoenaed, uh, but it's private conversations we have with our loved ones. Uh, If that could be valuable evidence that somebody is seeking in a legal abortion, that's something that can be subpoenaed uh, through a, a state court and could be obtained by uh, a state prosecutor in one of these states. Hmm. Uh, then there are things like location sharing. One investigative method that we know is frequently used uh, is trying to look at somebody's historical cell site location information. Right. Uh, so... Without disabling location services on your device, uh, you leave a footprint of all the places that you've been. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's stored uh, on your device, usually in some type of maps application. And that's going to be increasingly relevant if there are criminal investigations based on a suspicion that somebody is seeking an illegal abortion. Uh, If they uh, are seen traveling to another state and a state prohibits that type of interstate travel. We don't know if that's going to be upheld as constitutional, but certainly a person's location is going to become extremely uh, relevant. Hmm. Uh, Then there are things like uh, period tracking apps. I think we've uh, referenced this obliquely in the past. Right. Um, But in these tracking apps, you're potentially sharing sensitive medical information. And if you're using one of these tracking applications and it's indicated that you miss a period – uh, and then several weeks later, uh, your your period shows up. That might be evidence in a state court that you're trying to conceal a terminated uh, pregnancy. Hmm. 
Uh, so you combine that with you know location data that says that you traveled to a state that where abortion is legal, and suddenly we got a case against you. Yes, and then combine that with your internet search history, which says where can I obtain an abortion? Right. Uh, what are how can I get access free access to an abortion pill if I live in a state where abortion is illegal? Uh-huh. Um, those are searchable on. Uh, any public search engine, specifically something like Google, yeah. uh, where we know that they collect a lot of private information um, for advertising purposes to to give you suggestions in your search bar. Right. So once you've conducted that search, that information is going to directly to Google. Yeah. Uh, there are other things like uh, license plate readers, facial recognition software systems uh, that might be set up across state borders. Um, so if the state is trying to surveil people leaving and, and coming into the state either through airports or uh, across the physical border. Uh, that's something that people might need to consider, alternate transportation routes. Mm. Uh, if people are recognizing where a license plate has been uh, as part of a broader investigation. Uh, all of this is going to be extremely difficult for a layperson. The things you have to do to completely conceal your digital footprint uh, it's a series of pretty complicated actions. Uh, you'd have to disable your location services, which means that you can't access uh, a bunch of applications that rely on location services like Google Maps or Apple Maps or whatever. Uh, you have to use encrypted mes- messaging applications. Uh, so things like iMessage are encrypted, but Apple has the key. They can unlock it, uh, and these conversations are stored in the cloud. Uh, and then things like using incognito browser, uh, which is not foolproof in 100% of circumstances, um, but something, certainly if you're going to be searching for things that, that you'd want to do. The big question to my mind is what are the big tech companies going to do about this? Because hmm. they're going to start getting a lot of subpoena requests, warrant requests from these states to obtain this information as states uh, investigate people who have gotten or allegedly gotten illegal abortions. And so far, the big tech companies have been rather quiet on this issue. Hmm. And I think that's alarmed a lot of pro-choice advocates and electronic privacy advocates who might not be in this for uh, the pro-choice element, but just they don't want investigations that rely on this strong digital footprint. Right. Uh, and the they've, these companies have been a little bit cagey. Uh, All of their EULAs say we will comply with uh, lawful law enforcement requests. They'll say we'll push back if the requests are overly broad. Um, But it's it's hard to know exactly what that's going to mean. And do they have enough of an incentive to push back against these overbroad requests lest they develop adversarial relationships with law enforcement in some of these states. Mm-hmm. And we're not just talking here about states in the deep south like Mississippi. Uh, we're also talking about states like Ohio where abortion is effectively now uh, criminalized. Hmm. Uh, Utah is another one. Uh, so states that have areas that are cosmopolitan, big cities, uh, a lot of uh, young professionals working there. Uh, and we don't know how the tech companies are going to react when those states request uh, abortion-related data. Yeah. And So hmm. until the companies directly answer these questions, and they have not thus far, I think there's this really open question as to whether 
the big tech companies are going to shield the privacy of people who are seeking abortions. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about this, and one of the things uh, that has crossed my mind is, you know, it's been, what, about 50 years since Roe versus Wade was passed. Yep. Right? And so, obviously, a lot has changed yes. in that amount of time. Um Related to that, you remember back in the, oh gosh, it was probably the late 80s when um, uh, Congress suddenly became very interested in the privacy of your uh, video rental store records, right? (laughs) Because uh, it turns out you could just get someone's video rental store uh, history um, and this proved to be problematic for some members of Congress. And quick as a wink, they uh, made it, (laughs) they they, they put protection in place for that. Yeah, day one. I mean, if you're you're choosing one of the videos, those of us uh, who remember a video store as well, if you're choosing one of the videos behind the curtain in the corner, (laughs) you're going to be in trouble. That's right. So I'm wondering, are we about to experience something like that here where uh, kind of a be careful what you ask for thing? I mean, you know, one of the, the uh, arguments you'll hear about in the abortion debate is that um, people of means will always be able to have access to abortions. Right. And I think certainly members of Congress can be uh, categorized as as being in that, that category. Um, so what I wonder is if uh, our digital – our the technology that we surround ourselves with, is that going to make it much harder – for folks who are trying to keep something like this quiet because it would be uh, against their best political interest, are they going to suddenly find themselves under more scrutiny than they would have 50 years ago? And could that trigger, the same way that the video rental store thing did, could that trigger suddenly Congress is very interested in digital privacy? I think that's possible. I mean, we've certainly, there's one current... uh pro-life member of Congress in uh, from the state of Tennessee who I think has paid for three separate abortions for wives and mistresses in the past. Hmm. Um, so this is something that that certainly does happen. It's not just elective abortion. Right. I and mean, if there were a member of Congress who doesn't find it politically advantageous to talk about um, an experience and they have something like an ectopic pregnancy right. um, that requires them to have an abortion and they have to travel to a, a, a state that's maintained abortion rights – um, yes, that's going to be a major controversy. Hmm. I don't think that would uh, galvanize Congress to act just because there is a very substantial uh, pro-life minority in the House and the Senate right now, mm-hmm. uh, but enough that it could stop legislation. And I'm guessing that this time next year there will be a pro-life majority in the House of Representatives at mm-hmm. the very least, most likely in the Senate as well. Hmm. Uh, so that means I, I find – that prospect pretty unlikely that it would galvanize members of Congress. I think they would throw the embarrassed member under the bus. I see. Uh, and say, you know, what what this guy did was wrong, but that doesn't reflect on the rest of our movement. Uh, we don't want to, in the words of pro-life legislators, we don't want to inhibit states' ability to investigate illegal abortions. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I don't necessarily see that uh, as something that's happened. Now, what blue states might do is introduce new privacy protections to protect people traveling from out of state. Uh, so they might hmm. say, our state courts will not honor uh, a request for data that was obtained within uh, our state's boundaries. Oh. Uh, that's something that, that you might see from enterprising states like California, um, who, who have already passed in the last several days uh, new protections for abortion rights. 
Uh, and some of the other states where abortion is going to maintain uh, its its legality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's more likely we see action from blue state legislatures than we do from Congress, even though, as you say, this certainly causes the potential for some embarrassment because yeah. there is a digital footprint now for literally everything. And if you are uh, hypocritical about what you do in your personal life versus what you espouse publicly— Uh, Unless you are extremely careful, that evidence is going to exist. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think we're going to see high-profile cases uh, where where that kind of thing is revealed. Yeah. All right. Well, time will tell. It certainly is a a fascinating uh, case and potential unintended consequences, right? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, so much of this is uncertain based on how the tech companies react and based on the specifics of the laws uh, that are either triggered uh, in place in, in these states or that are going to pass in the next several months. Um, yeah. Our state's going to be ambitious enough to go after residents who travel out of state. Uh, and are they going to go after out-of-state providers? I think those questions will, the answer to those questions will shed light on how much of a problem this is for digital privacy, regardless of one's view on the abortion issue. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we will have uh, a link to uh, that story in the show notes. Um, My story this week uh, revolves around the fact that uh, some federal agents seized a phone of John Eastman, who was uh, someone involved in the January 6th plan. Uh, Ben, how would you describe John Eastman to our listeners? He was uh, President Trump's campaign attorney who wrote a lot of the legal memos advocating a strategy, uh, a couple of different strategies. Uh, One, to have states send alternate electors uh, to Congress uh, so that there wouldn't be a majority of uh, electors for Joe Biden and the election would have to be thrown to the House of Representatives, and he was an advocate of a legal plan to have Vice President Pence refuse to certify the electors uh, from a number of different states. Okay. So uh, we'll have a link to the New York Times story about the seizure of that phone. But what is of particular interest to us here is the actual warrant that they used to seize that phone. Uh, I give credit to Kim Zetter, the journalist, uh, for pointing this out. I I saw this in her Twitter feed. She pointed out that the warrant authorized authorities to compel Eastman to use his finger or face to unlock his phone, but specifically prohibited them from demanding his password. Ben? We're actually seeing this in real (laughs) life. It's amazing. We've— Kind of previously talked about this in very obscure cases uh, that we find on the internet and not something as high profile as John Eastman. Right. Uh, But yeah, this gets back to the Fifth Amendment right uh, against self-incrimination. That applies to testimonial evidence. Courts have generally held that entering a passcode is the content of one's own mind. Mm -hmm. And there are constitutional questions about whether you can compel somebody to enter that passcode if what they reveal would be particularly incriminating. Uh, The other side of that is biometric data, Uh, so facial recognition or thumbprints, which courts are more likely to compel because that's not the content of one's own mind. Mm -hmm. As we've mentioned before, that's more the equivalent of being forced into a police lineup Mm. uh, where your face is out there to to be viewed and evaluated. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in those cases, the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination doesn't apply because it's not testimonial evidence. Right. Uh, So I think they are looking to avoid... uh, 
a potential Eastman defense that his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination have been violated, which might slow down the legal process. So this is a case of surveying the legal landscape and Mm -hmm. dotting the I's and crossing the T's to make sure the warrant is constitutionally sufficient. Now, my understanding is that Eastman has sued to get his phone back, uh, which from, you know, from his point of view makes sense. Yep. Um, so uh, thinking through this and, and seeing that we're at this place where where they were they, they were specific in laying all of this out, uh, it got me thinking about uh, protecting yourself, protecting your device from this sort of thing. And of course, uh, my experience is on the iOS side of things, and and I like to use Face ID to log into my phone. It's easy, very convenient, yeah. and and uh, relatively secure. Um, but what do you do if the police come and say, hey, give us your phone, what do you do? Well, um, so let me walk through my thought process okay. here. Okay, let's, so, let's hear it. So on iOS, for example, if you hold down the uh, power button and either of the volume buttons for about two seconds, that will lock the phone. And it will lock the phone and require your passcode. Mm-hmm. So your face ID will no longer work. All right. Well— that's great, but I was imagining what if law enforcement comes to you and they say, put your hands up so you cannot touch the phone, right? They put your hands up, they come to you, and they take the phone out of your pocket. Uh, if that's incident to arrest, now to, to search the phone, because of Riley v. California, they'd need a warrant. But if they had a warrant to do that and they nab you in an arrest and say, put your hands up, right? Uh, then you're going to be out of luck. Well— Perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> but I did a little digging, Ben. Oh, okay. <laughs> it turns what do you out got for me? That if you uh, summon the the uh, the little person who lives inside of the phone, whose, uh, whose name begins with S and ends with I, mm. whose name I'm not going to say while I'm recording audio. Uh, She's always listening. <laughs> she is yep. always listening. If you summon her um, and you say to her, who does this phone belong to? That will trigger her to answer and and say who she believes the phone belongs to, but it also triggers uh, a locking of the phone. Ah, so good it to requ- know. Yeah, so it requires a password. You have to do it before a biometric unlocking. In other words, if the police grabbed the phone and immediately held it up to your face and unlocked it, you couldn't then trigger her and request the, the you know, summon the command and, and, and then it would lock. It has to be while the phone is locked. So, you know, you like let's say the phone is in your pocket or the law enforcement is holding it but mm-hmm. not in front of your face. You could say this and it would lock the phone. So you, wow, news you lot, can use, yeah, right? We're, <laughs> lot, we're giving a lot of advice to potential criminals today. That does sound like a uh, better option than what first came to my mind, which is trying to trick the facial recognition by making a funny face. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, scrunching your eyes and, and your nose and uh, right. making your face look like uh, what it does not usually look like when you're trying to unlock your phone. Mm-hmm. Or uh, before you put your hands up, try and dirty up your, your thumbs with some dirt so that the thumbprint doesn't work. <laughs> or, or just take your phone out of your pocket and chuck it across the room as hard as you can. <laughs> yes, right. that might cause other problems. Uh, that could well, be uh, so, an, an obstruction thing. Well, but, that's, what I wanted, that's where I wanted to go mm-hmm. next with you. So let's say I do this. Let's say the police say to me, put your hands up. 
don't touch your phone. And I say, I summon the phone and I put this thing into place that locks the phone. Uh-huh. Could they come after me with a, obstruction of justice? Oh, that's going to be a really interesting case. Yeah. Uh, I think it's possible. Yeah. I, I would not be surprised if we saw a case exactly along those lines okay. uh, at some point. I'm not aware of one that that exists uh, right now, but right. that, that is, has all of the makings of a fascinating judicial case. Because I'm actively trying to thwart their access in real time while interacting with law enforcement— that's I would lean towards that being an, <laughs> an obstruction charge, right? Um, but I'm not exactly sure how courts would see it. Yeah. Uh, what would not be an obstruction activity would be to, in uh, to, to use some of these privacy protections before you're in a situation where you're getting arrested. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you look at Kim Zetter's tweets, all of the responses are, "This is why I've turned off uh, biometrics on my device." Right. Um, because I'm afraid of the situation where I'm going to be compelled to unlock my phone and there's a lot of personal, uh, potentially incriminating information on there. Yeah. Uh, so that's the immediate step one should take if one were concerned about such a thing. Uh, you can disable facial recognition. You can disable the thumbprint uh, if you do that ahead of time, and it's certainly not obstruction. And then you get into a situation where um, – it's going to be a lot harder to obtain uh, a, a requisite warrant to get you to unlock the phone because that has Fifth Amendment, uh, Fifth Amendment implications. Hmm. So that's a, an action that somebody could take now to protect themselves about being uh, from being trapped in that type of situation. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> it's boy, it's interesting, isn't it? Interesting times. Interesting times. It sure is. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I know we've we've talked about it a lot. Uh, this distinction between using a passcode and using biometric data, but it's fun to see it out in the wild, uh, where it mm-hmm. actually might have an impact in a pretty important, notorious legal case. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, again, we will have a link to that in the show notes. If there's something you would like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. All right, Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Gary Bonacorsi. He works at uh, Tanium. He is their uh, SLED CTO and their chief IT architect. 
And our conversation centers around the Cyber Incident Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act. Here's my conversation with Gary Bonacorsi. So I think it's interesting, and I, I think this legislation that was recently passed by the Biden administration was in regards to the Colonial Pipeline. But I, I think that was just kind of the most public um, example of what are, I think, the vulnerability from the country's perspective at large is. Uh, infrastructure has been one of those areas that's been pretty much neglected, I think, from a cybersecurity perspective for a long, long time. Um, and, and what it's done, it's put uh, a lot of our critical infrastructure at high risk. And if we get to, you know, recent events in Europe indicate, you know, you never know exactly how the geopolitical um, um, environment can change from just moments, right? And I think mm. um, as from a targeting perspective, infrastructure is one of those areas where um, countries can be very vulnerable because I said from lack of um, investment. Um, so I think the recent legislation or what it's designed to do is to really help incorporate the knowledge sharing amongst providers of infrastructure, um, much like we did after 9-11, right? We had, we, 9-11 was a failure from a lot of intelligence agencies for sharing information. I think in regards to infrastructure, they're trying to get ahead of that and basically not only just reporting events that happen, but basically sharing with other entities that may have similar uh, vulnerabilities about what the defensive actions they can take and their posture. So as you look at this legislation, what is your take on it in terms of, you know, what they set out to do? And, and do you think as written, is it achievable? You know, that's an interesting question. I was contemplating that before our conversation. And, and, I, and I think it, it helps in some ways, but it doesn't go far enough in others. It helps in that, to my point earlier, that, you know, it's, it's kind of mandating the information sharing across different entities. Because in the past, I think if there was an event, you might not share it with others because you didn't want to disclose that you had a vulnerability and maybe open yourself some other attacks. But I think that's kind of short-sighted. And I, I think from the legislation's perspective, the fact that they're mandating sharing of information is a good point. I think where it doesn't go far enough is that it doesn't go back to the validating of where they are from a cyber hygiene perspective in advance of an incident. And I think this is a, it's, it's a problem across all of government, actually. It's around the visibility part. And, and what I mean by that is most entities today don't really have visibility into their environment. And when you get into infrastructure, a lot of these are um, operational controls technologies, OT things, and, and those are very difficult to protect, but they really don't have a visibility uh, about what their environment really looks like and where their vulnerabilities exist. I think the legislation could have gone farther in that it mandates, maybe even from a third-party perspective, some form of compliance check and basically some vulnerability assessments that are mandatory. I think a lot of infrastructure um, entities out there that provide critical infrastructure for the country don't really have a good plan of how they can test their vulnerabilities and then how do they can enforce that compliance once they do identify what the plan is, are they even in compliance with that plan? Uh, again, I think it's a substrate of just the way government operates. There's a lot There's a lot of governance and policy that gets written, just like this, like this legislation, but the compliance and the validations part on the backside is what's really, I think, sorely missing in government at large. And specifically, I think it's a big miss on this particular piece of legislation. You know, you bring up a really interesting point. Um, 
as a as sort of a, as a related aside, you know, my wife and I realized over the course of the pandemic that uh, a large part of keeping our house tidy was uh, dependent on having guests over. And so when COVID happened and we weren't having guests over, we noticed things tend to get a little more cluttered. <laughs> I'm wondering, you know, to our conversation today, the the fact that these organizations know that they're going to have to be sharing things, that other people are going to have to take a look at things, does that make them get their house in order? You know, I, I'm not sure. Um, one of the things I think the Colonial Pipeline incident brought to attention, not, not only just to Colonial Pipeline folks themselves, but to the industry at large, those people that have critical infrastructure, it really just demonstrated how vulnerable they were. So to your point about, does it going to help them if they're going to share and there's an incident? Is that going to help them clean their house? I'm not sure it really will. I go back to there's really no enforcement mechanism in this legislation. Um, you know, mm-hmm. if you're going to, um, you know, if you have to report an event, that to me, that's after the fact. I think the better approach is to be proactive before an event. And so if you do see something in your environment, sharing that in advance with others, I think is a positive state. But after the effect, you know, postmortem analysis, if you will, I'm not sure how effective that's going to be in changing behavior across the industry. I just hope they would do it because they realize the vulnerability is there and to begin to get their house in order way before an event happens. Is there any sort of time limit put on them that, you know, they, they must report within X number of days or hours or so forth? Yeah, I, I don't remember the exact um, reporting methodology, but yes, there is a time frame in there and there's a type of incident. So there's a lot of descriptive behaviors of what types of events need to be reported and when and to who. So there is criteria around that. So there is a, there is an enforcement mechanism to, I guess, from that from the reporting perspective, but I, mm. I go back, there's really no enforcement mechanism to get them preventative prior to happening. It's kind of like you think about it. It's like leaving your door front door unlocked and you hope somebody doesn't walk in instead of just checking your locks and making sure you have a process where you're always constantly locking and reinforcing your front door. If you don't do that up front, you're just waiting for someone to walk in the front door. And then after that, it's too late. How is industry responding to this? You know, that, that's interesting because I, I think um, I think the industry is taking this serious. What I don't think they have today is a real plan on how to proactively get in front of this. And I'll, I'll use like the power grids, for example. I think that's probably the most um, – probably one of the most vulnerable areas. And, and part of it is the challenge from a technology perspective is how do you protect something so fast – and basically complicated and run by a bunch of independent entities. If you think about it, the power grid system is really a mesh network of power providers, energy providers. Mm. So how mm-hmm. do you go? You're only as strong as your weakest link, right? And so you may have 90, 95% of the people that are doing a great job at this, but then you have that 5% or even 1% or even a fraction of percent. That's where that vulnerability happens. And in regards to the electrical grid, it doesn't take a lot. It can have a cascading effect, right? especially right now. You have the heat of summer that's going across the United States right now. The power grid's already stretched to the limit. You start breaking those small parts of that, and you can have a cascading effect that could be a domino and can take down an entire system. So I think they're taking it seriously, but I don't know if they're able, just from a from the complexity of it, I don't think there's a basically, uh, what would I use? I don't think there is a universal approach to how everybody works together 
to basically harden their infrastructure. And, and when you have a bunch of independent operators, that just makes that challenge even more difficult. What sort of advice are, are you providing to the folks that you work with in, in terms of you know, making sure that they have what they need or they're properly preparing for this? That's a great question. So I think it starts with the basics. And one of the things I think um, government as a whole struggles is the basics and that they lack visibility. They don't really even know what's in their environment, especially when you get to industrial controls. Uh, you know, it's not just, you know, your servers, your laptops, your desktops and your environment that and your systems that your operators work off of. But it's really the industrial controls themselves. Everything is connected to a network these days. Um, all, even your industrial controls, everything's operated remotely. There's very little um, hands-on. So when you think about that, when you lack visibility into what your environment looks like, you don't have certainty. And so if you don't have the certainty and visibility, then you really are just basically shooting darts at a dartboard. You don't know where your vulnerabilities even are. So what we advise people, at least what I advise people that I'm talking to, is stress as much as you can to get complete visibility 100% of your environment. You can't protect what you don't know. And so that's where I stress for everybody that visibility is the key. It's a key for every um, cybersecurity framework, whether you use NIST, uh, National Institutes of, of Science and Technology, or CIS, uh, Computer Information Systems Controls, whatever that framework is, it always starts with visibility and knowing what your assets are, where they are, and what's running on them. Now, my sense is, is that with critical infrastructure, we seem to be playing a bit of catch-up here. Um, first of all, I mean, do you agree with that? And, and if so, do you envision a time when we're, we're able to keep pace? You know, we are playing catch up and part of it is it's the age of the infrastructure itself, right? So mm -hmm. some of this infrastructure may be modernized, but other aspects of it are not. And so when you put those two things together, the investment that it would take to truly modernize and harden infrastructure, it's a really big challenge. And I don't think there's really adequate funding around that today. So I think that we're always going to be playing catch up. I just think it's um, one of those things as we make investments in infrastructure, we think about that visibility and hardening as part of that. When you do that, hopefully that gap begins to shrink between the infrastructure that's probably archaic and older, that's really hard to defend, is being replaced at a faster pace going forward with technologies that can be hardened and much easier to depend. All right, Ben, what do you think? I think we've kind of heard this message echoed from a lot of different experts that this is a really important first step. Mm. Uh, reporting is good to establish governmental knowledge, institutional knowledge of the threat landscape to critical infrastructure. Right. Uh, we've seen the real world effects of ransomware attacks and other cyber uh, attacks on critical infrastructure. And I think all of us expect it to get worse. Um, but reporting, a reporting requirement is only the first step. I yeah. think, uh, we're still far from a comprehensive solution, which is to better protect critical infrastructure. Um, that's going to happen at the state level, I think, uh, more prominently in the short run than at the federal level. Mm. Um, I think it's a more direct risk to states and localities, uh, even though, of course, the federal government 
maintains and controls a lot of critical infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think I think we should just see this as the first step and not the end game in terms of protecting critical infrastructure from cyber attacks. Yeah, it really is a, one of those, um, I guess, examples for me anyway, where the devil is in the details. Like, as you say, you know, this is a this is a good first step and we're headed in the right direction, it seems. But there's still a lot of details to work out. Right, exactly. <laughs> All those edge cases, right? Yeah. All right. Well, again, our thanks to uh, Gary Bonacorsi for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Pittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>